Welcome to the Lean Health Tech Podcast, where industry professionals discuss trends and topics where efficiency, healthcare, and technology meet. My name is Taryn Shipley, and I'm your host. Our guest speaker today is Steve Spear. Steve is a senior lecturer at MIT, senior fellow at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, senior advisor at the Boston Consulting Group, and founder and co-creator of C2Solve, which provides software for collaboratively mapping business processes and calling out problems quickly and easily so they don't have a chance to become big. His book, The High Velocity Edge, won the Philip Crosby Medal from the American Society for Quality in 2011, and he recently published Wiring the Winning Organization. Spears' research has been acknowledged with five Shingo Prizes and a McKinsey Award from Harvest Business Review. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Hey, thank you so much for making the time. Appreciate it. Today's topic is Beyond Efficiency, a blueprint for fostering continuous improvement. Steve, in your latest book, Wiring the Winning Organization, you talk about the key ingredients to creating a culture which fosters effective communication and continuous improvement. One of the first major ideas you present in the book is that there are three mechanisms to achieve greatness, slowification, simplification, and amplification. Let's start with slowification. What is it? Why is it important? And how can it be applied in a healthcare context? Yeah, it's fantastic. So, um, and apply, talking about healthcare, you'll see the direct connection here. So, just, just some context. My work over what's now like three decades has been trying to explain the paradoxical outcome that all else equal, um, you know, organizations which are doing more or less the same work, subject to the same rules, regulations, et cetera, et cetera, depending on the same suppliers uh, for uh, raw materials, capital equipment tapping into the same labor force, um, looking for similar opportunities uh, to uh, either uh, deliver value um, to society or just achieve a mission that's been assigned to them by society. Um, more or less, folks doing the same work or have similar performance across whatever metrics are important. And there are some which they, they just blow the doors off of everybody else. It's just phenomenal in terms of safety, quality, time to market, variety, agility, reliability, resilience, everything. They're better at everything. And... Um, when we started investigating why this is, and this goes back, uh, you know, like I said, with my um, dissertation advisor, this fellow, Ken Bowen, what we really came to appreciate is the very, very best organizations, they are like obsessively consumed with creating a phenomenal environment in which people can give the fullest expression to their creativity, their problem-solving ability, their innate ingenuity, and then having those individual efforts um, integrate harmoniously in a well-choreographed collective action towards common purpose. That's the thing. And, and when we look at this, whether it was 30 years ago, looking at Toyota, high performers in healthcare, military operate, it, does, it simply doesn't matter that the ones who are best worry about the conditions they've created so that the human mind can give fullest expression and individuals can thrive as being um, valuable contributing members to society. So anyway, let's tie this back to slowification. So in the book, Wiring the Winning Organization, we talk about danger zone and winning zone contrast. The danger zone is where the conditions are really sort of not supportive or e even aggressively hostile towards us doing creative, generative things. So the problems we're presented with are uh, wildly complex. The situations are fast moving. The stakes and risks are very, very high. Um, we have very little learning opportunity through iterative problem solving to converge on good answers, so on and so forth. And the winning uh, zone is just the opposite. It's um, the situations we're addressing have been somehow simplified, things are less fast moving, so on and so forth. So anyway, back to these three mechanisms. 
So we talk about slowification as um, creating conditions in which people, when they're faced with a problem, they don't have to be impulsive, reactive, dependent only on pre-existing muscle memory. In fact, they can be deliberative, reflective, self-critical, and otherwise be generative in terms of coming to appreciate new situations and generating new solutions. And just one last thing on this slowification mechanism, it is a made-up word. So uh, and, you know, maybe someday it'll enter uh, Merriam-Webster's whatever else. But the reason we picked slowification, it was an acknowledgement to the great work done by Daniel Kahneman. And one of his landmark works was the book, Thinking Fast and Slow. And in that book, among the many other lessons he delivers, is that um, sometimes we operate with fast thinking, which is that sort of impulsive, reactive dependence on intuition. And sometimes that's wickedly important because when we're driving along and someone starts to pull in front of us, we want to depend on muscle memory as to how to navigate our own car to avoid a collision. The thing Kahneman warns us about is that when we're in this um, fast thinking um, modality, that we're generating good solutions to old problems, but we're not well equipped to generating new solutions to new problems. And that's when the slow, slow thinking comes into play. So anyway, when we're trying to label this mechanism of slowing things down so that the world looks like it, it's like um, Neo in the matrix, that bullet time effect where everything's fast other than to Neo. So, you know, what do we have to do for uh, individuals? Slow things down so they can um, put their minds to the best possible use to solve problems, then have the solution and then bring it back into the fast moving performance environment. Slowification is so important, but it can be especially challenging to the inpatient world. Oh my gosh, yes. Medicine doesn't stop. It's 24-7. It's not like you can pause your processes, reassess, and then re-engage in the process. You have to change the process while you're executing the process. Yeah. No, I, I think you're making a great point, and I think you're uh, giving a good articulation and voice to what people think is true. But let me argue back against that. Heaven, heaven forbid... Um, you know, something happens that you got to take yourself, a loved one, family member, friend to the emergency department. Last thing you want is to show up in a situation where people are just figuring it out for the first time. You're hoping for when you've got an emergency, and that's what emergency department's really for, is that there's a, a threat to life or limb, that they already have the ingrained skills, the capabilities, the habits to... Um, establish airways, control loss of blood, deal with shock, et cetera, to at least stabilize you so that you can then be moved into a situation where people can be more deliberative in their thinking. I think the key point here is that if we expect to be um, high performers in the performance environment, which may be complex, high risk, fast moving, then we actually have to have committed time to build the capabilities and skills we need for the moment of test. And in the book, Wiring the Winning Organization, we actually have an example of that. So about 10 years ago, Patriots Day, as uh, you know, here in the Boston area, especially we recollect and not happily, it was the Boston Marathon bombing. Terrible thing, active, uh, terrible terrorism with uh, you know, great consequence. But there was some really miraculous things which occurred that day. First of all, patients were getting from the finish line where the bombing occurred into emergency departments in, in the local medical community within minutes. Not only that, um, and just to give you a sense of the severity of the wounds, that of 50% of the people who were uh, transported into an emergency department had some type of amputation 
as a, a life-saving act on the day of, all right? And here, here's the other thing. Of anyone who got transported to a Boston area emergency department that day, again, given the severity of the injuries, everyone survived. Everyone survived. And you're like, whoa, how did that possibly happen that you had this mass casualty event with all these um, trauma injuries and everyone survived who uh, made it to an emergency department? The answer is this, is that nothing had to be invented on the fly or nearly nothing had to be invented on the fly that day because over the previous years, the local community of first responders and care providers, et cetera, had used all sorts of opportunities to prepare for a mass casualty event. So in the, in the past, you'd have the marathon and the mass casualty concern was um, dehydration, maybe cardiac conditions, et cetera, et cetera. So they had already thought this through, but they had worked out the bugs. So as soon as there was word of a mass casualty event, boom, the patients who were already in the emergency departments that got moved elsewhere into the, um, the hospitals in the local community so that there were beds available. There were uh, doctors, nurses, pharmacists, technicians available because their plate had been cleared. It had been rehearsed as to what to do in the case of uh, chemical or radiological concerns. So as soon as the uh, call went out that there was a mass casualty trauma event, the screening protocols got enacted on and on. This is a whole long list and we go into some detail in the book. But what's the key point? The community had created protected time and space to build up skills for events that they didn't yet have the skill and capability so that when um, the problem arose, they just executed. And anyway, um, that's what we see in a lot of, in, in the very best situations. As pressing and compelling and demanding as is the performance environment, they also say, yeah, but there's stuff for which we're unprepared. So it was demanding and compelling and pressing as this environment is, we're still gonna have committed time where we move out of the performance envir environment, back to planning, back to practice, back to rehearsal, so that the day of, it just clicks. This idea that you're explaining about building slack into mechanisms was probably my favorite concept in the entire book. Because surface level, it seems entirely counterintuitive to creating lean processes where we want to be operating at maximum efficiency. But to your point, we hear all the time, people see what's wrong, they know what's wrong, but they don't stop and take the time to fix it because they quote, don't have the time to fix it. Bingo. Yeah, so you know, I'm, I'm so delighted you brought up the, this issue of lean processes because I think it's worth acknowledging that term. The term lean, um, before it was even lean manufacturing, it was lean, it was lean production. So there was a graduate student at MIT and uh, he was writing his master's thesis. And he did this comparison across all the world's uh, final assembly plants. And most of them use a similar amount of resources and other inputs to generate the similar amount of outputs, except it was five or six. And on any given day, with half the effort, half the people, half the capital equipment, half the physical space, et cetera, they were generating twice the output. And it was higher quality and all the other stuff. And, and, and this fellow, John Craftsick, John was looking for a way to label this phenomenon of half in, twice out. And so he was studying the auto industry, which was at the time probably still is the epitome of mass production. And he said, well, if what everyone else is doing is mass production, what do I call this half in, twice out? And so he came up with this idea of lean production. Now, he, here's the thing, is that sometimes that, that term lean has gotten bastardized to think that, oh, 
What I'm supposed to do as a leader, as a manager, is strip resources out of the organization so that uh, we we're using less things. Here's the problem. And this is um, where John and some of the other early researchers about lean you know, made the point. It wasn't like the resources in the organization, you know, floor space, capital equipment, wasn't like that was the independent variable. Like, oh, we're going to have less in inventory, pull it out, less equipment, pull it out. It was like, no, that was the dependent variable that the high performing organizations had gone through the distributed, the deep, the rigorous problem solving to figure out how to take the resources they had and put them to so much better use than anybody else. And that's why they were lean, that the engine behind lean was this intense, sustained, pervasive problem solving. So anyway, taking that back to this issue of uh, protected time, People think of being lean, whether it's lean production, lean manufacturing, lean healthcare, lean this, lean that. They think it's like, oh, what we have to do is strip out resources. What they've done is they've missed the point that lean comes from the committed time of solving problems to figure out how to do better with what you have. So you need less to do more. Now, on the other hand, you know, like, like with the example of the, uh, the trauma care provided 10 years ago after the uh, the Boston Marathon bombing, folks realized that in order to be wickedly good under stress and in that moment of test, you have to have the committed time. And, and then, then that, becomes, that becomes the common pattern across all exemplar organizations, whether it's a Toyota, whether it's in healthcare, whether it's in software development, uh, whether it's in um, military operations, it simply doesn't matter. The folks who are in the moment of performing so much better at using the resources at their disposal, they're the ones who had had this committed time to do the learning loops in a protected fashion so that they had the skills, the capabilities, the muscle memory, the intuition to perform when under a challenge. It sounds like there are two ideologies of practicing lean. You can shoot for the instant gratification, which is what you were talking about is eliminating right. goals, making them work efficiently at 100%. Where in the long run, I mean, if you want delayed gratification, give the people space to work and think and problem solve, and you might not get immediate revenue from that. But in the long run, when you have more efficient processes, that is absolutely the way to go. Absolutely. And the thing I would just add on that is that um, the instant versus delayed gratification. So let's focus on that. The folks who go for the instant gratification, yes, in the moment to say, oh, look, we've stripped out all these resources. So if we do a, a calculation of a ratio of output today versus resources, maybe in the moment, but that instant gratification doesn't endure because tomorrow, you know, they're in a situation where they have fewer resources, but they lack the, the competency to put those fewer resources to better use. And so what you have is like in the moment, it's like, oh, this is great. Look, you know, the uh, denominator on our, our of output over input, the denominator went way down. So the ratio went better, but it's like for a day. In terms of the quote-unquote delayed gratification, what we see is that the folks who um, commit time, and this is how I put it in my first book, The High Velocity Edge, of committing time to making sure they're aggressively seeing problems, and when they see problems, solving those problems, and then taking whatever they've discovered locally and sharing it and spreading it systemically, that um, the delay is also like days and weeks. Because here's the thing, you have a situation where someone goes in to do work and uh, that person start, goes to start a job 
and the job is not ready to work. They're lacking information, materials, technical direction, et cetera, et cetera. Well, all you have to do is give them those things and they're better tomorrow, right? So the, um, the speed at which improvement can be um, generated and the slope at which uh, better things can be enjoyed is just extraordinary. So yeah, I, I'd say, yeah, it's instant versus delayed. But the key point here is the instant is very, very fleeting. And the uh, delayed is a very short delay for a very enduring gain. I'm going to move on to the next topic of modularization. Yeah. So you refer to modularization as reducing dependency on others for work. Healthcare processes are so intricately intertwined. Can you give us an example of how a hospital, for instance, might practice modularization? Oh, yeah. We, we have a great example on this. So uh, the basic idea is uh, danger zone to winning zone is that what you want to do is take big, hairy, highly intertwined situations and partition them so into smaller pieces. And we use this term coherent. So they still have all, all the resources they need to be complete to solve the problem, but everything is not connected to everything else. And we, we, had, we had this example in a primary care practice. And at first glance, it seems the, the most simple thing. It was primary care, adult primary care, so no geriatrics, no pediatrics. So it would seem that, you know, how hard can it be to get patients appointments, have them come in, give them an examination, and, and have them discharged? And it turns out it was frustrating for everybody. Staff were always feeling overwhelmed. They were always working beyond their schedule. Um, patients were always frustrated about the uh, difficulty getting appointments. So what we did is we did a study. I mean, study, you know, it was like... You know, we, we, we followed a, a couple of patients through the system. And what we discovered is that even though this was, quote unquote, air quotes around that simple adult primary care, there was a lot of complexity because when we followed patients through and saw the um, healthcare professionals with whom they had to interact and the work those healthcare professionals had to do, there were actually 12 different appointment types in the system. By arbitrarily scheduling patients, that if you had a patient come in for appointment type one, there was a sequence in which they had to see a, a medical assistant, phlebotomist, a nurse, nurse practitioner, doctor, et cetera. But if someone came in for a different appointment type, the whole system then had to reconfigure. And then another patient had to reconfigure again. And so much time was spent reconfiguring to get the next flow with all these professionals trying to find the information, the materials, the supplies, uh, the resources, the patients sometime that patients were spending a lot of time just waiting for the next person to come up. So what do we do? This was at a, a practice within the mass general system in, in Revere. What they did is they said, wait a second, why don't we simplify things? And what they did was for an individual doctor, and you know, all the doctors had to have 12 appointment types. But it is, let's say on Monday, eight o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock in the morning, you're gonna do only the first three appointment types, one, two, and three. Then at 10 o'clock, that's when you're going to see appointments four, five, and six, and then in the afternoon, seven, eight, nine, and so on and so forth. Now, it turned out that by partitioning appointment types one, two, and three from appointment types four, five, and six, volume through the system doubled. It was, it was phenomenal. And now, you know, someone might be listening and saying, oh, but what if I want to see my doctor? All right, well, if you, if you need an appointment number four, well, you could come in later in the day to see your doctor, you can come in a different day, you can see a different doctor who's giving appointment number four at eight to 10 when your doctor is doing appointments. There was ways to meet the need, but here's the thing, by simplifying and not having to continuously reconfigure the system because one, two, and three had been a partition from appointments four, four, five, and six, and so on, 
capacity was doubled and the overburden on staff went down. So, and what does it mean to double capacity? It means that um, patients can just get same day appointments. They don't have to wait days and weeks for an appointment. Staff aren't burned out because their time and attention is devoted towards actually doing assessment and diagnosis and treatment planning and treatment and education, all the things they learned to do in school and none of this scut work of trying to find this thing or that thing. So that's a particular application in healthcare. And there, there are several others, but I'll stop with that for the moment. People are often impressed by complex solutions, but really it's the simplest solutions that seem to be the best. That's right. Yeah. So uh, to your point is um, when we start looking at anything uh, that was uh, grand and it's an achievement and you look at the entirety of the whole, you're like, whoa, the millions of things that had to be considered. When you start digging deep inside, what you realize is that the people who um, architected, and I picked that term deliberately, architected that experience, realized that trying to attack the whole was impossible. And so what they did is they figured out how to partition and break down and otherwise simplify the experience each person was facing so that um, the problem the individual or the small group was tackling was small, but some, but still the architecture was such that the whole was much, much greater than any of the parts. And um, in, in the book, we give a couple of examples. One is um, we play off of the landing on the moon of Apollo 11 and Neil Armstrong saying, you know, small step for man, giant leap for mankind. And in the book, we actually break down and say, you know, that's actually um, a poetic statement, but it was almost factually true. And we then give some of the detail about how NASA took this huge, huge undertaking of sending a man to the moon and having him return safely to the earth by the end of the decade, as President Kennedy offered the challenge, and actually breaking it down into little bitty pieces so the whole was achievable. So yeah, to your point though, trying to throw complex solutions onto complex situations skips the step of first asking the question, can we actually simplify the situation so the solutions we have to generate don't have to be quite so complex? So we've addressed slowification. We touched on simplification, mentioned amplification. We talked about modularization, building slack mechanisms into work. You also addressed social circuitry at the beginning. Yep. All concepts make perfect sense, but is there one concept that you found to be notoriously more difficult than others? A couple of references on here. The, um, the very first uh, thing I published about healthcare goes back to an article in Annals of Journal. And, I'm sorry, goes back to an article I co-authored with a doctor, Mark Schmidhofer, in Annals of Internal Medicine. We were responding to a series of case studies in Annals about medical misadventures of different types, mismedication, um, surgery, uh, an invasive procedure performed on patients with a similar sounding name. And when we looked at across all of these, we said, you know, at first glance, all of these uh, medical misadventures seem different by um, what occurred to whom and how. We said, Underneath it all, what was the problem? Workarounds. That there was previous evidence that there was something wrong in the system that made it harder to be successful and easier to do the wrong thing. But when it was seen uh, the first time, the second time, the third time, people were saying, no, just, just keep going, it doesn't matter. And because the situation wasn't addressed when it was a small problem, it had an opportunity to become a big problem. So anyway, this whole issue of ambiguity and workarounds becomes a key theme, key theme in my uh, first book, The High Velocity Edge. 
In the second book, Wiring the Winning Organization, in the forward, the former chief of naval operations, uh, Admiral John Richardson, he does this beautiful, very eloquent explanation of the three mechanisms, slowification, simplification, amplification, as to how it builds up great performance. But then at the end, or then he transitions, and where does this all fall apart? It falls apart when we lose amplification. Because when we lose amplification and this sort of the uh, obsessiveness about seeing problems early and often before they have a chance to become big problems, when we lose amplification, what happens? We stop slowifying. We say, no, no, we'll just keep going. And we stop slowifying, then we stop simplifying. And Admiral Richardson, you know, in, in that forward, he builds up how these mechanisms take you from whatever performance you have to much better performance. And he shows, yeah, but if you want to degrade things, then stop amplifying and you'll stop slowifying, you'll stop simplifying, and then you'll suffer catastrophe. So they do go hand in hand. Even if you're practicing slowification, it won't get you all the way there. You still have to practice that simplification and acknowledge that amplification effect. Absolutely. And it all ties back to creating conditions in which people can apply their minds best towards solving problems. And what is amplification? It's making it, making it evident um, very loud, very early, very often that you even have a problem to pay attention to. If you don't do that, then what's the point of having rigorous problem solving elsewhere? I know that was a lot of information, but do you have any other words of advice for healthcare organizations practicing continuous improvement? Yeah, I, I'd say, look, first of all, embrace what you do. Anyone in medical, medical care, healthcare, you made certain choices to take on a mission to um, spend your days creating better conditions for other people. And that, that, is, that is like, I mean, like a, a holy obligation you've taken on. And so stay at that. The other thing is that um, as you were being trained to be a, a medical and a healthcare professional of any type, people taught you how to be very rigorous in assessing situations to look for abnormality and then being creative and figuring out why the abnormality was occurring and what to do about it. So you start thinking about that, that really sanctified mission that you have in your sector and the approach you've learned to express your professionalism. All we're encouraging is keep at that, but just expand the aperture onto which you apply those behaviors from the patient directly to the system around the care provider. And if you keep doing that of looking for abnormality, diagnosing it, developing treatment plans for it, and then putting implementing those treatment plans and putting them in place, you'll make it easier and easier for yourself and your colleagues to do what you signed up to do when you accepted this sanctified professional mission. I love the analogy how you tied it back to clinicians solving problems for patients doing that same thing just on a system level. Love that. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing your insight around creating a culture to foster continuous improvement in healthcare. This concludes today's Lean Health Tech podcast. If you're a listener and would like to hear a certain topic covered in future episodes, please let me know by leaving a review or comment. Thanks for joining and be sure to check out the next episode.